what are we doing here? Um, so this is this. Uh, I must just this out. This is this is a family podcast. It <laughs> is part is of it? the material. So goes the 80s discotheque. Welcome to the Flick Lab once again. I was kind of waiting for the Bajuenga from your end. Yeah, I mean, I am good at the cliches at this podcast, but I decided to go with something else for a change. I mean, we did the top-notch quality jokes in the last episode, so I'm trying to avoid the continuation. <clears throat> well, folks... We're taking a little bit of a break from James Bond and uh, watching The Lion King today. Uh, but let's just go through the happenings of late. How is my co-host Henrik? I'm once again back on the road, heading towards Croatia next. And I have no ideas whatsoever what's going to happen to me, you know, during or after the trip. So I, uh, I, I guess we'll we'll see my state of being the next Sunday. Well, more than likely, you will board a plane, be in Croatia, and get back to Finland via plane. Well, I would almost say that more likely I will board the plane, arrive in Croatia, and somehow be imprisoned right after that, and I will spend the entire week in custody, and most likely also, you know... I will spend the next three or four months in custody until I'm finally exiled back into Finland. I know that you're very liberal, Henrik, right? But, I mean, you don't have to go that crazy in Croatia, <laughs> once in Croatia. I, I, I do have a bit, bit of a bad habit and t- tendencies when it comes to me and abroad. <laughs> Those one-of-a-kind experiences have to be played to the fullest, I must admit. I... Um, Kari, nice to meet you, Henrik. I haven't been here before, so well, welcome to this podcast. This is this is Flick Lab, the movie podcast which I host. It's nice to have you as a guest here. Uh, thank you, I'm honored. Yeah, and that is how the power in this podcast changes. Once we tackle one, once again, you know, the surpassing the past kings in Lion King. So now, now you know what Simba and Mufasa went through. I, I'm like the I'm like the score of of the podcasting community. That could be, but somebody still holds the keys to the kingdom to our server, so it might be that I just pull the plug if <laughs> it, if the kingdom is going to have any disrupting tendencies. That, that, that would kind of explain what the hell happened to the whole savanna in, in, in Lion King when it was Scar's rule. God damn, you're really trying to force this podcast to go into the actual subject here. But <laughs> <I> no, <am laughs> no way. <laughs> no I, I'm, I'm, I'm forcibly railroading us to get to the point of, of this episode. <laughs> no Because way. Because for our listeners, Scar's hand is, hand is completely busted, which is bad <laughs> news oh. since Scar is the one who has done all the editing magic behind the scenes so if this if today this week's episode is more shit than usual it is precisely because curry is there not this time curry is not there to save us yeah there there could be some 
little <coughs> stumblings here, but uh, we will do our best in this podcast. Before we railroad the conversation completely and move on to Lion King, I would like to take the rails to Aladdin. I did go watch the Aladdin just yesterday, the new live action remake. And uh, how did I feel about it? Just okay. I mean, okay. Jafar was terrible. And it was unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. And it was in a lot of places aping the original. But it also kind of did have enough material to kind of be itself. But uh, you know how it's going to turn out. All the main points are the same. So anyone who knows anything about the original is going to have a kind of a... Eh, time. It was, uh, it was okay. Okay, that's kind of surprising because I've only heard bad things about the new Aladdin. Anyone I've known, no one, absolutely no one has liked the film. Well, I, I can see that. I, I suppose I'm being more forgiving than you'd think. Still looking forward, to, not looking forward to Dumbo, but... Um, uh, yeah, I heard that the live action version is very different from the original cartoon. It might have that responsibility to be slightly different from the original, to avoid all the problems that that would the things that would be viewed as problems in today's cleansed uh, understanding yeah. what makes a film. Yeah, I, I checked out the trailer and it did look very different to me, yeah. like like a completely different. completely different story this time, which I was kind of happy to see, seeing how I I have had a problem with these Disney live actions, where they simply retell you the same old story, and maybe do some small changes here and there, usually for, for the worst, but Dumbo actually would appear that they are really telling a completely new story with the character, and that is kind of even admirable, Like I, I tip my hat for to the film for doing that, but at the same time, you know, then what what I perceived of the new storyline from the trailer, it really didn't look that promising. Yeah, very likely to be so. And once again, if you hear any interesting sounds like rah, rah, it means that I'm in Wajienki Park, just like in the the Brücke episode of this podcast. So, excuse me. Next week, it just might be that we have better audio quality in this podcast because I will actually get my own flat and stop this stint of being homeless for like six months. And internet for this show is provided by Janne. Thank you, Janne, because my internet is not working. <laughs> it, the things we do. Yeah, it's it's like in all the series and high product film podcast where they are official sponsors like Squarespace and Podio Books supporting the podcast. In our case it's it's just some guy named Janne. The Lion King. What's your experience with the Lion King, Henrik? Lion King was kind of a shape to form with watching Disney movies to me. I originally got it in theaters. This was once again that period of time when Disney animated classics were high-class film theater releases in Finland. And we had started to check back on these Disney films as a family event. Like, all of us kids and our mom would 
book joint tickets to the movieplex and we would kind of check out the newest release. We started this down back in Rescuers Down Under and continued it, if I remember correctly, as long as to the Hunchback of Notre Dame. So to me, yeah, to me Lion King is kind of an important film from my childhood. Okay, I seriously do not remember seeing The Lion King ever in the theater. Shame on my parents for that, shame on you. Or maybe it's just my brain doing flips again. But if that happened, I have completely erased it from my memory. I think I I haven't seen Pocahontas, Aladdin, The Lion King, almost anything in theaters. I, I do remember that we went to see the, the this live-action piggy movie. A babe? Yeah, babe. Yeah. But <laughs> other than that, eh. I do remember that I was in some special theater. Could it be in Malmi Cultural Center or something like that in Helsinki? I went to see Bambi. Yeah, in the 90s. That was cool. I did like the film. But yeah, The Lion King. Definitely we had it for VHS in childhood. And my mother was kind of active of buying movies of Disney for VHS. So that's how I came into contact for this film, for sure. Most definitely one of my childhood classics. I was starting to get a little bit older at that point. I was kind of a rebellious against animated or films that have some childish elements already at that point. So, but The Lion King, that was still a triumphant experience. And I did buy it for DVD later on, one of the first animated film DVDs that I bought to my collection around 2003 or 2004, 2005, when they released this uh, special edition where you have the extra song. Oh my god! I feel yeah. bad for you. Yeah, I mean, I think I watched it without this added scene first. And then I watched it and there are these documentaries saying good things about this scene, but it's such a filler, it's so unnecessary. Not sure if somebody returned to the drawing board to finalize the scene for the release. I'm not sure. Maybe it was completely finished, but nevertheless, completely unnecessary. I, I've heard nothing but the bad for this new special edition Disney. We added some stuff into the film releases of the old classics. As, as yeah. far as I've understood, in Lion King's case, they also added some small scenes like and some small dialogue here and there. I've heard rumors that, for example, Scar's queer coding is even more obvious in the newer release. I myself, I haven't seen the new release. Even for this episode, I did watch the original version, which did not have anything added or changed in it. So even today I can't, you know, vouch for anything when it comes to the new releases of the old classics. But I, I, I've heard some pretty horrible stuff about it. Yeah, I mean, it was a choice that you didn't need to see the added scene if you didn't want to. They were using this DVD technology where you can choose kind of the original version, which automatically skips the added scene. So okay. no, no problemo. The Lion King. All right. Do we have anything on the actors of The Lion King? Well, like with all, all the Disney releases, we once again, we have two sets of actors here. There is the original English audio and then there is, of course, the Finnish dub. 
which I, I guess we also should cover here, seeing how we are both Finns and we also oh. watch the Finnish release. Uh, 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 I have some Japanese heritage, not going to comment. Well, we are not going to touch upon that un- un- unless if you want to bring up the Japanese dub also, but that's purely on you. I'm not good, you know, touching that subject matter with a 10 feet pole. But yeah. Just, ju- yeah, just kidding. No, don't have Japanese heritage. We can uh, touch on the Finnish version. For this time, I was not able to watch Polish version to pretend to be the fake Polish person of this podcast. So we'll scratch that and English and Finnish it is. And with that out of the way, well, in, in the original we have two Simbas. There is the Jonathan Taylor Thomas who gave you the dialogue when Simba was still a kid. Uh, or four. Actually, if you also count in the ones who do, do the singing, because both Simba and Nala in the American dubbing, they have different voice actors for when the characters are young and when they are old, and both the young and the adult version also has a different singer for the song parts, because for some goddamn reason they decided to cast actors who can't sing their own songs. <laughs> yeah, though this has always been the deal, <clears throat> that they changed to a different voice actor for the singing parts, well, to a f- f- singer and um, this doesn't happen as often with the Finnish parts. Does it happen even ever? I guess no. Like, like Finnish can pull off both. They can both voice act and they can sing. Which means that we are we are better people than the Americans. Yeah, th- there is this uh, Finnish philosophy called perkele, which means that you will do it <laughs> and you will have the strength of mind to pull through anything at all. Yep. Even if the results are abysmally terrible. No, but the singing here is great, and the dub is exceptionally great. It is. Once again, you know, I'm kind of... To me, it comes... When when we compare the two dubs, the original and the Finnish, it kind of comes into a quite strong duel between the two of them. This has been a recurring problem with me when it comes to the Disney classics, because... By default, in these old Disney animated classic films, the Finnish dubbing has been excellent. And I really have to give it to our Finnish voice actors for the job they pull off. Once again, here in Lion King, I would even hazard to say that in parts, in some characters, the Finnish dubbing is better than the original ones. That's absolutely true. I would make a special mention for Jukka-Pekka Palo or J.P. Palo in this film who does the Finnish voice of Scar. And even though the Scar in the original, played by, help me here, Henrik, Jeremy Irons, is pretty good, I think uh, Jukka Pekka has this certain rasp in his voice that is exceptionally fantastic. That he does. To me it was very much a tie between Irons and Palo, who gives you better Scar. I, I liked a lot of the nuances in Jeremy Irons' voice performance when it came to spoken dialogue. But when it came to the songs, I really felt that Jukka Pekka kicked Jeremy Irons out of the ring. And it was ha- hands down, it was Jukka Pekka Palo who gave a better song performance throughout this film. It was kind of a lower voice and it had more of a roar in it. It was kind of a... At times, Scar was outright yelling his lyrics in the songs. 
in Jukka Pekka Palo's performance, and I really did like that. Jeremy Irons' scar was more, it, it was more softer. Yeah, yeah. Although this doesn't mean much to our listeners who are not speaking Finnish. But yeah, if you like to listen to different language dubs, then I think you will understand what we're talking about. The thing to take home with you as a, as a listener here is to remember that the Finnish voice acting was better. Exactly. Wasn't this dub selected by Disney as the best dub out of the foreign ones? I am not completely sure about that. It's very well could have been. I, I do know that the Aladdin dub garnered extremely a lot of praise out there uh, in the world. For a good reason. For extremely good reason. And in that case, Vesamatti Loiri, who gave the voice for the genie in Finnish, was actually thought to be better than the original voice actor Robin Williams, which was really high bar to topple. Known especially for his performances Uno Turhapuro in Finland, which is kind of the masterpiece from Finland. So if you're going to watch any film from Finland, then please watch Uno Turhapuro. Just, you know, maybe we should not tarnish the Samatti Loiris career by mentioning Uno Turhapuro films. I would say that he is Uno Turhapuro, just like somebody like Roger Moore is James Bond. And both films are insufferable. We will see. We are getting to this Roger Moore films sooner than later. Especially looking for forward to Moonraker. <laughs> Especially Moonraker. Like Una Turhapuro is, is Roger Moore's Moonraker, except that Una Turhapuro <laughs> was actually <laughs> twisted out to be an entire fucking franchise. And um, Una Turhapuro didn't yet visit space, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> the film should be shot out into the space. <laughs> oh, 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 did we have something about the original voice actor still? Uh, on the original side, yeah, like mentioned, there, there is Jonathan Taylor Thomas, of whom I'm not that familiar with. He gave us the voice of young Simba. I'm mostly seen him in, I, I guess, in some minor roles in TV series like Veronica Mars. The... Song for Young Simba was given by Jason Weaver, and when it came to Adult Simba, we we have the performance of Matthew Broderick, who I guess is most well known for the Roland Emmerich's live action Godzilla film. So punchable face immediately right there and there. Also given voice performances in the B movie and the Lion King sequels. Kind of a, if you want to check out Broderick's work, I guess the easiest one to go through with would be the his latest 2011 Tower Heist, where he was the Chase Fitchburg or something like that. James Earl Jones was the original Mufasa. I, I guess most well-known for being the voice of Darth Vader in the original Star Wars trilogy. And like mentioned, Jeremy Irons, the American version of Scar, really, really a tough actor to follow. Extremely prominent actor in film circles, most well-known and loved for his appearance in the Dungeons and Dragons, the movie. 
Okay, looks like you're <coughs> picking the quality productions once again. Uh, once again, I'm giving the most quality productions for all, all these high class, <laughs> high class actors. Excellent. But now, you know, you, you can catch Irons, for example, in Die Hard 3 playing the main bad guy, Simon Gruber. If, if you wanna want something more better. These days, Irons have been kind of on the lazier side, I guess. Appearing in, for example, Assassin's Creed, the film as the main antagonist of sorts and being the Alfred Pennyworth of the Jack Snyder Batman films, both of which are extremely abysmal. But there was the marching call, which I haven't seen myself, but I've understood is quite good depiction of the 2007-2008 financial crisis or the open, the starting moments of the crisis. Excellent. Would it be my burden here to say, would it be scene by scene, Henrik? Yeah, why not? Let's, let's jump into the film so we can get you out of the park before they close it. <laughs> yeah, once again. Okay. I have to say that I kind of prefer all the traditional stuff that I grew up with, like the two-dimensional Walt Disney Pictures animation, which we do not get anymore, replaced by this 3D version. But I like to complain about everything. Well, I, I'm with you on that one. I also like more the 2D style than the 3D computer animated, which is the fad these days. Although the computer animated stuff did already appear also in Lion King, but it was not in such of a prominent role. It kind of was added and used in some small scenes, as far as I've understood, to give you more liberties when it came to the camera angles and the camera movement throughout the film, and to kind of give you more tools in use when animating the more difficult scenes of the film. Should we jump into this whole circle of life problem? I haven't delved too deep into it, but the kind of odd thing is that the film is talking about the circle of life while it's mixing in all these things about lions eating antelopes. Problem is that the antelopes are kind of the servants of the lions, if it's anything to go by from this opening scene where you see the whole animal kingdom of Africa bowing before the Lion King. Well, so. it, it, it is the Lion King, so technically this is a monarchy, so of course everyone who is not a lion, and more notably is not a lion in the royal heritage bloodline, is a servant automatically. Exactly. There's a lot of so societal things that you could draw from the Lion King and blame that it's uh, straight out favoring Nazism <laughs> or totalitarian regimes. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's favoring totalitarianism, but it does favor monarchies. It does favor that one ruler concept. I would say the main difference between, for example, Nazism and the monarchy as presented in Lion King is the fact that in Lion King they try to make the point that the king, the ruler, should be this more softer, more philosophical one. And be kind of a in the background guiding force of his kingdom instead of being actively militant one. 
the Nazi symbolism is very strong with Scar in that singing part, yeah, which well. he has in the film where the Hainas almost make Nazi salute as they march. That is unavoidable symbolism. Yep. 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 And I, I would say kind of a, that scene most prominently highlights the difference between the two ruling systems and the point that the Lion King tries to make. In Lion King and with Mufasa, who is the rightful king, is the good king and the one you should follow throughout the films, he's this loving king. He, he is this layback monarch who... His, his rule is unquestionable. No one can challenge him in his right to be king, like just like no one should challenge Simba's birthright to be king, and all the savanna has to acknowledge it. Every fucking animal in the savanna has to come when Simba is first presented to them and take a knee in form of respect. That much is demanded from everyone, but Scar through that one scene with the hyenas is presented as an outright Nazi and his role as is seen in the film is complete shit and just you know leads into an ecological catastrophe. So with that in mind I wouldn't say that the Lion King is preferring Nazism or fascism but it most definitely does make a case that there should be a monarchy. There should be a king. And that is, a you know, having a king would be a good thing. There were quite a few differences made to the original script, which was heavily reworked for the final version. In the original version, just as a one point, Scar wasn't even in the center of the whole story. Scar was not even related to Mufasa. But, of course, in typical Disney style, and rightly so, they made... Scar, the little brother of Hufasa. Which makes this far more interesting, Henrik. It, it, it does in a way. It's, it's hard to say what the original storyline would have been, or how well it would have worked. I've understood that in the original versions of the script, Scar was a papoon. Basically, he was very much in the same animal line as is Rafiki, now in the finished film, like... He, he would be the same breed of monkey and the adversity would come from the fact that the monkey is trespassing on the lion's turf. That's what I've gathered. I haven't been able to find this original script of the Lion King. But that from all these small tidbits of information, that is what I've gathered would have been the dynamic in the original story. It's hard to say how good the film would have been if it would have followed that plot structure where it's an opposing animal, an opposing force that tries to topple the existing power dynamic of the lions. Of course, when it comes to the, this film's themes, it works better in that light, that Scar is Simba's uncle and Mufasa's brother, and it is this royal power coup that happens in the film. And we do have themes that are rather more suitable for adult audiences. It is something that works both for adults and uh, kids, but uh, this is an exceptionally rough experience. <laughs> Excuse me, there's shit flying around in this park on my face all the time. <clears throat> Not literally, but... Uh, so, the thing is that there is a lot of elements that could be viewed horrible for the kids' audiences. There's 
reliance dying. They're talking about eating antelopes. I guess that's okay. What else can we come up with? Well, the themes are pretty dark, still. Themes are dark. When it comes to adult themes in Disney films, I think Hunchback of Notre Dame is even more heavier. The themes are even more adult. But The Lion King is very good entry point to these adult-themed Disney films. That it is. And as we have discussed before, prior to starting recording, that uh, it's um, borrowing elements from Hamlet, uh, but not only <laughs> Hamlet. Uh, what? Well, is this Hamlet? No, it fucking ain't. Yeah, the Hamlet argument. I've, I've come kind of across that one numbers of times. The comparisons between Lion King and Hamlet are something that are basically brought up by everyone and their moms. And I can see why, because on surface level, there is a lot of hamlet themes and moments in Lion King. Like there is the villainous uncle who kills the rightful king and challenges the son. There is the whole ghost dad thing going on in parts of the story. So, yeah, I, I can see where the comparisons between Lion King and Hamlet come up with. But there is also a lot of things that really much contradict the Hamlet storyline. Like Simba doesn't have to appear as a crazy person to secure him, to protect his life in any part of the story. He simply has to go to exile. Scar doesn't kill enough persons when you compare him to the Claudius, he only kills the king. The ghost dad is basically completely different. Even even the themes of the stories are completely different when compared to Hamlet. Hamlet as a story is very much about self-identity. It's very much pondering about the existential questions and it's very much about revenge. Whereas Lion King is all about kingship and to becoming a king. And most notably, you know, unlike Hamlet, Simba fucking lives. Hamlet dies at the end of Hamlet, right after he has killed Claudius, and actually, you know, loses the whole kingdom this way to the Norwegians, who happened to be hanging around and walk into the scene right after Hamlet's death and see Empty Throne and are like, oh yeah, well, as might, might take it to ourselves. Yeah, but there is the revenge aspect in the sense that, you know, they are... Simba is confronting Scar in the end, but it's more about getting the kingdom back and saving the whole tribe than fighting the uncle for revenge. Yup. There is... In a way, there is a revenge. But the revenge is never in the forefront of any of the actions. Even when Simba fights Scar at the end of the film, it's not about revenge. It's about kingship. It's about reclaiming your throne from the unlawful king. And that is actually something where I would say, you know, the Hamlet comparison, for example, shows extremely a lot in the form of the ghost dad. In Hamlet, the main message of the ghost dad is that he has been killed by his brother, Hamlet's uncle, and Hamlet has to venge for his death. When it comes to Hamlet as a king, the ghost dad really doesn't give two shits about Hamlet following to the throne. When it comes to kingship, Hamlet's dad as a ghost is all about simply, you know, don't let it be ruled by the damned incests. Claudius being an incestual character in the play. 
And that, that is the no-no. In, in the throne question, when, when you look at what Mufasa told to Simba, Mufasa can't give two shits about, you know, telling Simba that Scar killed him. Does it even mention it? When it comes to question that Simba shouldn't beat himself over the stick, blaming himself for the death of his father. <sighs> Who cares? Crap. Mufasa doesn't, you know, bother to elevate Simba's emotional pains in that regard at all. What is the main reason why Mufasa breaks the rules of time and space to appear as a force ghost to Simba? That is simply to remind Simba that Simba has to take the responsibilities of a king. You are my son and the one true king. That is the only message for Mufasa's ghost. <clears throat> and with that regard, I would actually say that more than Hamlet, Lion King ties more with Henry IV, where also the main focus is in the path of a young prince, in this case, Prince Hal's emotional growth into kinghood. They, they both kind of start in the same point, Simba and Prince Hal. They both have been born into privilege, into luxury, both being princes. They both wait that they can get to the throne of a king and they show disregard towards the responsibilities of king. In Simba's case, this is Simba going against his dad's wishes, going against Sasu's advices and, well, having the entire song, I just can't wait to be king. Prince Hal, on the other hand, is a layabout who hangs around in the bad parts of the town, consuming wine and loose woman in the mentorship of his then-spiritual guide, Falstaff. They both kind of have to show, in the later parts of the story, both Simba and Hal have to show that they actually have grown into kingship and that they can take the responsibilities of the king for themselves. Hal does this by actually telling Falstaff to fuck off, going on with a, with a speech that he now denounces Falstaff, he does not recognize the person of who, who Falstaff presents that past Prince Hal. He denounces his past self, this layabout prince who enjoyed wine and woman, and remarks that if he has ever been that kind of a person, that must have been some kind of a dream state from which he's far too happy now to be awakened from. And with Simba, it is, well, basically the ghost that's showing up and reminding him that he is the one true king and he has to return back to his kingdom and take the throne for himself. Yeah, the parallels with the Kimba the Lion made in Japan in the 50s, the TV series, it's kind of unavoidable similarities that we see there and we just must admit here that this drew heavily from this original series. And uh, the characters are same, the character developments are for a big part the same. And the only problem with this is that in this case, for whatever reason, Disney was making the claim that this is a truly original story. When in fact it is not. I mean, they were pushing Pocahontas around the same time. Pocahontas came one year after The Lion King, roughly. And that was clearly based on historical events. 
And Disney does this kind of all the time that it's based on something and everything is based on something that this is heavily based on something that was already like very known in the animation circles. Even a bunch of the the professionals who worked on animating The Lion King were aware of Kimba. There were even at least one or two people who openly were thinking that they are, of course, they are making like a American or like a new version, new adaptation of Kimba. But Disney never gave credit for Kimba. And the original makers of Kimba never filed for a lawsuit because they thought that, well, Disney is this big juggernaut, so it doesn't even make sense to start a lawsuit against them, which probably is true. I did watch the 97 film that is based on the Kimba series. This one had very limited amount of these references or these similarities with the Lion King. That could just be that now the team of Kimba is afraid of using the elements that they themselves created. But in the 50s TV series, this is really clear. Your thoughts, Henrik? I have to admit, I haven't seen Kimba. So when it comes to comparing Lion King to Kimba, I am really out of my depth. And I have to leave that department to you. I am aware of the anime TV series. I didn't even know that there was a film made out of it. And I've come to understand that, yeah, there are a lot of similarities between Kimba and the Lion King. But like I said, I I haven't seen it myself. So I can't really vouch for those talks, but I, from the from the rumors I've heard, the evidence should support the statement that, yeah, Lion King would borrow heavily from Kimba. Yeah, like all the central themes are, are there, even though in this series there are different emphases in places. When it comes to, comes to the animators kind of acknowledging them borrowing from other sources, I, I guess it goes... To mention that the animators felt that they were also copying from other Disney films, most notably Bambi, with the parental figure dying scene, where in Bambi it's it's Bambi's mom, and in here it's it's Simba's dad. I've heard a rumor that the animators themselves were even jokingly calling the Lion King as Bambet. When they talk about about the film <laughs> behind the scenes, yeah. because of this similarity. Yeah, I, c- I can see that. Yeah. But the similarities are indeed too clear between Kimba and Simba that you just have to admit that things were heavily borrowed. And um, you know, who knows, where maybe there were a couple of animators who thought that, okay, hey, it would be nice to draw in like a couple of inspirations from Kimba since I think we're making Kimba all over again anyway. But... Um, just a couple of animators just can't take control of the entire story to the extent that we see here. So it was a conscious choice, not such something brilliant that somebody got into their mind in an airplane. Yeah, especially also in this part of the history as a Disney, as a company. Because Lion King was also done in very turbulent and extremely business-driven days of Disney Corporation. That it was, that it was. Production already started in 1988 for this film. So this was, once again, a long process, but came into fruition after several adaptations. Henrik, we have passed a couple of uh, songs and events while rolling the film, so we could talk about perhaps the Just Can't Wait to Be King song. And the songs are written for a big part by Elton John, Hans Zimmer, 
and Tim Rice, the lyricist, like a trusted lyricist for Disney Corporation. So the, I just can't wait to be king. I never even thought about it in that sense that there were some <laughs> concerns raised, that, and uh, rightfully so, that the song is problematic because it is basically making Simba say that, oh, I just can't wait till my dear daddy dies. As it's also been pointed out in the parody version of the song, mm-hmm. where Simba outright sings, can't wait till dad dies. <laughs> right. Yeah, I saw some snippets of that. Yep. That that really does tie into the point you raised, that there is a lot of other themes that are not that obvious for the child audiences. I also didn't pick that one up when I originally saw the film in theaters, but of course now that you see the song as more grown up, it is extremely obvious. And I, I wouldn't say that it's even hinted that Simpa himself n- realizes what he's actually saying. But yeah, w- once again, Simpa can't become a king before his dad dies. I suppose, unless the Mufasa is getting old enough to give the throne while he's alive, if that makes any sense. It, it could make sense. However, there is never actually shown you in Lion King in any way that that would be how the monarchy works. Yeah. And and not the typical way where the ruler kind of stays on the throne until he dies. And Mu- even Mufasa emphasized this side of kingship when he gives Simba the circle of life speak and mentions how one day the sun will set on his rule and instead rise on Simba's rulership. So I I would say even there it is hinted that Mufasa also acknowledges that the only way how how the status of the king can be passed on, it is through death. Yeah, gives a weird color for that particular song. But all the songs indeed are extremely well made and you can see throughout the passion for this project in the animation and the musical parts and the story itself. It's a very solid package. One of the reasons just kind of might be that uh, Pocahontas and The Lion King entered production pretty much at the same time. And Pocahontas was actually seen as the more prestigious project, I think, as we have talked about in the Pocahontas episode. It, it was. Animators were asking to be allowed to skip from Lion King to Pocahontas. And animators to Lion King were begged. The people begged on their knees, please come to do for us this uh, seen as a B-movie project, Lion King, where the Uncle Lion kills the King Lion and it's scored by Elton John. And this is apparently how it was kind of pushed for certain executives or uh, insiders. And uh, apparently that didn't quite work for them. I don't know why, though. Yeah, it's it's funny how it played out in the end, however. Seeing Mm. which one of the two is actually a stronger film. Oopsie doopsie. Regardless, this became an extremely well-made film. They wanted to prove themselves. They most definitely did. I don't see any inadequacies in the animation of this film. And it even has a lot of computer assistance when it comes to lighting and particle effects and how they made that extremely expensive scene with the herd where they run through the whatever passage. That 
was completely computer animated using a system that Disney had developed in the late 80s. They had to actually program it so that the, of course that the so that the buffaloes would not go through each other. Of course they had to bump against each other when they are touching each other. And uh, they were cell shaded so that they look like traditional animation in a way. And it works incredibly well. I try to take a close eye on if they are making any collisions and indeed they are doing some collisions. But it's hard to tell that it's actually computer assisted. Meaning it works really well. It, it does. And partly I would say why it works so well it is because they still at this point they were kind of uh, easy going with the computer animation and how much they relied on it. Exactly. Exactly. This is this is the kind of a perfect marriage between like traditional hand-drawn animation and giving the assistance of computer when it's needed. And once again, like in the Pocahontas episode, I said quite clearly that I do prefer the traditional hand-drawn animation over the 3D animation that you get today. Of course, I have moments where I enjoy the 3D animation, but there's so much that is lost in 3D animation in a sense that well, I guess it's up to tastes. I don't know, but you definitely lose some certain features. I'm not even sure why they don't do more of this cell shading-esque animation nowadays, because it would be more interesting to me, you know. In this traditional animation you have, like, clear outlines for the characters, whereas in the something that we see nowadays, like Finding Nemo, which is already, okay, granted, really old. But the Finding Nemo style of animation just doesn't quite work for me. It looks like you're playing with plastic toys in a bath. They look so plastic. They do, and they... One problem with the computer animation is that it usually ages really badly. Especially... These early parts, the, the 90s and early 2000s computer animation, which today kind of looks extremely horrendous. I can't yet vouch for exactly how badly modern computer animation will age, but I might not be exactly hopeful. It might be that also that even the modern computer animation, give it 20-30 years of time, it can actually look quite the horseshit. Whereas the traditional 2D animation kind of has this everlasting quality. Yeah. If you are interested in seeing exactly how badly kind of the 2D and the computer animation can clash, I do recommend that you check out Disney's Treasure Planet, which is perhaps the most hideous example of them mixing the two animation styles. I see. Now that we are at the stampede scene... It should be said that this for me is one of the biggest cinematic moments of my life because it's just a perfect marriage of fantastic animation where computer comes in to help with this incredible score by Hans Zimmer. Unfortunately, a score which didn't get its full release until 2014 when the full musical score was released in the new, new print of the new release of the soundtrack. Holy Christmas cow, how good this music is in this film. Would you agree? I most definitely would. It is extremely strong here. And I think also that Elton John really knocked it out of the park with his songs. Yeah. Like, simply compare the soundtrack and the songs here in Lion King to, for example, Disney's animated Tarzan film. 
and you really once again can see kind of the dip in quality and how Lion King is, is the stronger contender. And even Tarzan tried to use heavy names in its soundtrack department, in its songs, but Lion King kind of shows you that you simply can't guarantee that you get the best possible material. Still, to this day, the most successful hand-drawn animation and did break the box office like crazy at its time. At its time, it was the m- most successful film, right? And na- Yeah, on its time, I guess. Yeah, nowadays, of course, it has dropped qu- quite a lot. Now I believe it's on the spot 42. Nevertheless, like, incredible performance. It is. It, it was made with budget of 45 million. Yeah, which ballooned. Yeah, and the box office was over 900 million. 968 million, in fact. So, quite good. You know, really made the gangbusters, so to say. Yep. Really took the antelopes home, or something like that. And it, it is this kind of a box office numbers that kind of saved the Disney animation department during these years, because Disney continuing with animated films, and and especially with, with high-class Productions was not really certain. The animation department being seen inside the company as kind of a something that is more losing than making the money, and something that was actually considered of being dropped from the corporation side. Michael Eisner pushing heavily on other aspects like the parks and merchandising of Disney properties and reconsidering axing the animation department. Yeah, I mean, the merchandise stuff is one thing in itself because the movie itself, as said, made close to a billion billion dollars worldwide and would our little friends in the yard just shut the hell up? We have a bunch of crowds making some noise. Unfortunately, since we're not in Africa, we do not get the proper sound environment here. I would have been okay if it would have been like antelopes, of course. Do antelopes make any noise? Okay, carry on. But yeah, the merchandise made home over $1 billion in itself. So never to be underestimated, those Lion King balloons and uh, sofa cushions. Hey, there's an interesting thing about the grouse that they won't shut up. And the fact that in the Lion King you do have quite quick and uh, noticeable tonal shifts. Mufasa just died, man. And already we are at the scene where the hyenas are having their comedic moment where one of the hyenas gets some cactus in the butt or something of the sort. And even though there are these tonal shifts, the movie doesn't suffer for it. In fact, it works really well because you have these more dramatic moments and uh, the movie is able to kind of rise from it. Kind of also to remember to please perhaps the, the kids out there that they might need something else. It's, it's a working mix of two different types of film. I, I, w- I would say something that might play here in the Lion King's favor when it comes to the tonal changes is the fact that Lion King still isn't afraid to actually play those heavy moments through. Like Mufasa's death it still is a scene that is allowed to continue quite a time. 
Their first is that heroic moment when Mufasa leaps out of the stampede and hangs on the side of the cliff, followed by that dramatic moment when Scar pushes him off the cliff and then having that heartstring pulling moment when Simba tries to talk to his dead father and is asking for the two of them to go home, asking for his father to rise up. And the scene is carried forward by the moment when Scar comes to Simba and tells him that that the king is dead. And that moment is followed by Still not funny, but more easier, fast-paced action scene, which is Simba running away from the hyenas. And the jokes start only at the end of the action scene. So you don't have this heavy, drastic change from one tone to another, where it would be Scar pushing Mufasa out of the cliff, followed by a joke. You, you don't get that kind of a transfer. Instead, you... The, the hard stuff is still allowed to continue to a point. And you are allowed to see the harder moments and the darker moments of the story in a fulfilling way. And as pointed in some analysis of the film, it's quite needed to get the cactus in the butt at that moment so that we can move on to Timon and Pumbaa scene. Otherwise the transition from Mufasa dying to the Timon and Pumbaa could have been a little bit too drastic so shot by shot or scene by scene we kind of prepare the audience for this extreme tonal shift of Hakuna Matata we, we do and we also at the same time we do remind the younger members of the audience that this still is funny and exciting adventure film in a sense and you are not simply watching heavy-handed drama about a child losing his father. Timon and Pumbaa are kind of the the slacker characters of the film. Yeah, they're the easygoing layabouts. Yeah, and they are feeding Simba this kind of a philosophy that you need to leave your past behind or your behind in your past, whichever way it might be. And it works for a moment, but at the end Simba realizes that he has to face his his past in order to I suppose, develop as a character to become an adult, really. More than that, I I would say that Simba is reminded that he still is a lawful heir to that throne, and the responsibilities of the king lie on his shoulders, and he can't run away from his role as a king and those responsibilities. Yeah, but would you agree that it's very much a growing-up story to, to take responsibility of your place in the world. I actually wouldn't. Really? Yeah, to me, see, uh, Lion King does not read as a growing up story. I- in fact, in my opinion, it really skips very quickly, you know, the whole growing up part. S- Simba getting age and even Simba being called out on his past actions. Like, b- basically... The only thing that everyone around Simba seems to be interested about, not in counting with Timon and Bumba, is Simba's role as a king and the theme of kingship. And that, I would say, is is the major theme of the film and what the film mostly is about. It is about 
acknowledging the responsibilities of a king, not not acknowledging responsibilities as a man, so to say. Well, th- there has to be some deeper point to the whole Hakuna Matata. We are not outright leaving the Hakuna Matata behind. Well, with one reading, you could say that the Hakuna Matata is left behind completely when they leave the jungle. But we could also draw that Simba learned something from that. I'm not sure how it kind of fits into the end of it all. But it, at this point, it gives an excuse for Simba to slack off. The Yeah, the, uh, the Hakuna Matata part of the film. To me, it reads as Simba abandoning his responsibilities as a king. And that is what Rafiki, the ghost dad, and Nala later in the film come to remind Simba of. Exactly. The fact that Simba is a king and he has king's responsibilities. And I, I would say that that more than the growing up, that kind of is what is going on and what is the theme also in Hakuna Matata part of the film. How, how Hakuna Matata feeds into the later ends of the film... I, I would say that Simba does abandon Hakuna Matata as a philosophy, as he once again remembers that he is the one true king, and this way he has the king's responsibility, which he now has to grasp. But I, I kind of took it that Simba does remember the whole eating bugs part of these years. That would be one way how Simba can have the savanna come back to life. How he can guide the meat eaters, the carnivores of the jungle to still find food once the ecosystem has been compromised under Scar's rule. Because Which is also a very interesting discussion point. Like, how was it possible that under Scar... Well, he does kind of disrupt the ecological balance, it seems, when he makes the connection or the... Community of hyenas and lions, and this somehow breaks the ecosystem so completely that uh, we have to get Simba to save the day. Yeah, uh, when it comes to Scar fucking it up in Kingin, I would say he he does do that to an effect. Like he he does disrupt the ecosystem of the savanna by breaking the previous cycle where the hyenas have been corpse eaters and where the hyenas have lived by eating what gets left behind in form of dying elephants and the carcasses of the cute animals that the lions don't eat. Hyenas get by by scrap and Scar does mess with this when Scar allows hunting also for hyenas, and this way the amount of killing that happens in savanna gets multiplied, because now it's not simply the lions and other carnivores killing the omnivores, but it's also hyenas taking active part in the killing, because fresh kill is much more nicer and much more meatier than eating the scrap and the carcasses. But at the same time, I also would kind of give Scar some slack because I somehow feel that the Savanna also faced a extremely long dry season, which also would kind of factor into the whole mess that the Savanna and the Pride Rock appear to be once Simba <laughs> returns back to the rock. 
And I, I would say it's unfair, you know, to count the whole dry season also on Scar's reign, even though the film would appear to make that connection, seeing how immediately after Scar is dead and Simba takes his place as the king of the Pride Rock, the skies open and the long-awaited rain finally falls upon the ground. Uh, no, no, Henrik, the hyenas were actually so hungry that they felt like eating the every single leaf out of a tree living at its stage during Scar, and the only thing on the menu would be Zazu that you cannot eat anyway. For, for some odd reason, yeah, the Zazu who is loaded by all the main characters or the main bloodline or at least not given that much credit to by anyone in the main bloodline for some odd reason Sasu is not allowed to be eaten. But it needs to be said that uh, Simba experiences this whole Hakuna Matata philosophy then kind of leaves that behind to become the king so in, in effect leaving the hippie lifestyle behind him and taking responsibility of his place in the world. And this analysis I would agree to in a way that if you just live your life doing the whole Hakuna Matata until the end of time, then you're nothing much than a, well, sorry folks, like a general archetypal pot smoker who doesn't really get things forward in his life, whereas Simba stops smoking weed and actually puts together a family. The, then again, it also needs to be noted that Simba's return to the throne would never have actually come to fruition. Would it not be his friendly potsmoker friends who actually do most of the heavy lifting, working as a live bait for the hyenas, so Simba only has to face his uncle in one-on-one fight? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, without the friendly neighborhood potsmokers... Simba would have actually gotten his ass kicked by the first pack of hyenas, the first kind of a sentry that Skor had surrounding him. Yeah, it's re- really still an interesting w- way to build this whole plot. You know, you live by one philosophy first, and then you completely scratch that, and even then, you still hang on to your friends Timon and Pumbaa and make them your adjutants or whatever in the new new kingdom. So uh, what, what, whatever they are in the end of the film, yeah. Piggy on the Pride Rock, yeah. But they indeed they are part of the great circle of life and kingdom and help him out. Nala now finds his way to Simba's kind of a junglish hideout. This is a kind of a interesting. Uh, the, there's a lot of interesting scenes happening here, which we could discuss about the fact that Nala goes to look for help. Because there is no food except Zazu. And she's looking for help, but still takes the time to have some romantic moments with Simba, our protagonist. Well, Simba Simba is the only help that she actually manages to find. The question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's that's, that's not the point. My point is that they are having this little face licking time when Elton John is playing, not really giving a damn about the lions that are left behind to suffer on the bright rock. I mean, they should be moving on and not licking themselves in the grass, but... Well, Nala did complete her mission. She did find help. Like, the real question in in Nala's mission is, in my opinion, what help was Nala actually expecting to find from anywhere? 
Exactly. <laughs> like uh, yeah. you, you all, all, yeah, yeah. All, all the fucking lions are still on the rock, the pride rock. So what was Nala actually hoping to find elsewhere? Except maybe more food and water, but that's not what she was looking for. She outright states out that she was looking for help. Well, of course, and uh, well, she's going to need help uh, carrying those water bottles from Camp X to <laughs> Camp Y. Yeah, they're taking this extremely long trek back to Pride Rock to carry a few water bottles because the film also presents the distance in a way that it is rather long from Pride Rock to Simba's jungle hideout. Yeah, then there's another thing. like Why are they so stubborn and headstrong to stay at the goddamn Pride Rock if you have ample paradise land right where Simba is living at? And it seems to be in a distance where Nala is able to travel to. Yeah, that, that also never quite made sense. Why everybody is so headstrong sticking with the Pride Rock? I do get that the Pride Rock is kind of a kind of the throne and the castle of the king and even to the lions themselves as seen as how how the other lions were also allowed to sleep inside the rock. But yeah, I, I also didn't never actually understood why leaving the Pride Rock would have been so no-no for Scar. And even to other lions, when Simba returns to Pride Rock, when he kills Scar, the land still is ravaged by Scar's rule and the dry season. It still yeah. is very much dead. Sure, Simba does bring it back to life, but that does take time. So yeah, why, yeah. yeah, why, why did everybody stay with the goddamn rock? The well, the Scar is a little bit of a dummy and totally, totally wants to stay at the Pride Rock because of his stubbornness about the Pride Rock. I don't know why he's so, why he's so willing to stay there. Even at the end, when they are about to have their fight, it's that particular thing that Simba orders him to leave the Pride Rock and to never return again because. He loves the goddamn Bright Rock so much. Yup. And then the fight ensues because of this. Yup. Scar pretty much dies because he's unwilling to leave the goddamn rock. Yep. And to a point with Scar, you can kind of say that it it is simply because of his megalomania and because he has so long felt scorn to his brother who became king instead of him. But yeah, it still is extremely extreme attitude from Scar's part, and it does not explain what the fuck is the thing with all the other lions and the goddamn stupid rock. Yeah, exactly. Scar just could have gone to this paradise where Nala and Simba are currently, and just could have built his own kingdomhood there, perhaps. Who knows? With the goddamn hyenas as the servants. Why not? But yeah, there we have the Can You Feel The Love Tonight, which turns into a Can You Feel The Scorn Tonight. Nala and Simba arguing. And uh, to give the final push for Simba to actually return back to the Rotten Pride Rock, he will see hallucinations made available by Rafiki, this loner monkey who has some special magic powers to provide this vision, accompanied by 
clouds which are for whatever reason edited out of the current releases of the Lion King. Currently I'm watching the DVD version because it has the finished dub and I'm not sure if the cloud is still intact in here. Depends if this is the 2003-ish version or newer release. I guess we will see that. Did you notice that the clouds were gone? No. Yeah, well, because they, when the clouds subside, it's not there anymore. Interestingly, Rafiki in the Finnish version was played by a Moroccan choreographer who just might be still living in Finland, Hendrik. And he did a bunch of uh, linguistic mistakes in his performance, which though contributed to this character. There's a bunch of crazy humor in this film. There's Rafiki and Timon and Pumba. I do remember even as a kid or a teenager that I wasn't completely maybe 100% on board with the humor that you see here. I mean there is fart humor for God's sakes in this film. If you compare to the older generations of Disney films, you don't have this. No you don't. This is kind of a, a product that was brought into the Disney films in the 90s. And I also feel that this is, this is one of those aspects where where Disney was not on its top performance. Like yeah. so, so, some of the jokes, even in these very classical Disney films, are, well, in a lack of better word, insufferably lazy. And the far jokes are perhaps the most obvious example of this. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's lazy. It was a great success for kids. It's something that will make the kids laugh in the theater, for sure. Kind of the sure way to make the kids involved at that moment and fall in love with Timon and Pumba because farts are so lovable. Um, and at the same time, it's a family experience. So something for the adults, something for the kiddies. Uh, to me, it still is lazy. It, it was lazy even as a kid. Well, yeah. I guess we've just fall into the same ballpark of not really giving value to fart jokes not or the like. No, I, I, mm. I've seen a couple of them being pulled off successfully in some films, but more often than not, I would say in the 99% of time, I only yawn whenever a fart yeah. joke is presented. And it is kind of a shame because it appears to be kind of a go-to form of a humor for comedies. Oh, looky looky. Even in this DVD, the, the clouds are edited out. That's weird. What was so wrong with the clouds? Hmm. I, I suppose I suppose somebody just uh, was going frame by frame through the film and figured out that, oh, this film in this particular frame at moment X looks like a penis. So it must be a hidden message from Disney. So they had to remove it. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, the, the, there is the famous SFX text that is made with the particles that, that start flying when Simba in frustration starts laying on the ground at the cliff in the jungle. I haven't ever even picked up on that. Yeah, the, the text says SFX, but of course later on, viewers, when they found it, they thought that it says sex. And a huge scandal en ensued. Well, that might, of course, explain thing or two. Simba has left the jungle and left Nala completely behind. Because fuck Nala. He was in such a hurry. Well, fu fuck everybody, really. And the thing that I always wondered was that how do Timon and Pumbaa actually travel to the Pride Rock? I mean, we're still talking about Warthog traveling for hundreds of kilometers, perhaps. Well, I, I, I can kind of 
by the whole warthog being able to make the travel, but how the hell did they manage to catch up with Simba? Simba still had a head start. Like, yeah, I, I, I would say it may, maybe mm. half a day, maybe even a full day of a head start. Like or how, just, how, how slow is Simba in running? Because even Timon and Pumba can catch up with him. Very slow. Or how long it took Simba to actually admire the devastation back at the Pride Rock? Well, it's explained in the film. You, you see that uh, Simba is running with uh, slow motion, so that gave them ample time. <laughs> That that, is, that explains. Simba was in such of a hurry to get back home that he accidentally forgot the slow motion on. <laughs> yeah. And Simba's eyes change color. When he's a kid, I think they are green and now they are red. Yep, that they do. For yeah. no, no apparent reason. Yeah, weird. There is Nala and uh, time to forcefully take the throne back. And the final confrontation is something that never completely made sense to me because the only reason why Scar actually loses the fight with Simba and well basically loses the situation even to the other lions is because for some really odd reason Scar has this compulsive need to let Simba know in what he then believed would be Simba's last moments was the fact that he is the one who killed Mufasa and not Simba. Like that, that appears to be the only mistake that Scar makes in the final confrontation. It's kind of interesting that Simba is so easily coaxed into believing when he was a kid that he was actually responsible for the death of Mufasa. But uh, uh, it's believable, but you have to consider a few things that makes it believable enough. You know, in the, in the past, Simba did go to the elephant graveyard. And during that, when Mufasa... His father rescued him from there. It did make Simba feel the inadequacy that he should be feeling at that moment. That his dad is stronger, smarter and bigger in physical size. And when he is being blamed by Scar for killing Mufasa, he feels that since he is not kind of up to par with his father, then he should leave the Pride Rock because nobody will be siding with him. There is also the fact that Simba can believe that the stampede was his fault, since he was in the canyon practicing his roar. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that can be connected with, with that. I kind of always did. To me, it also read that that was kind of the major thing why Simba believed that he was at fault in Mufasa's death. Even though you, when you think about it, Logic-wise, it doesn't make sense, but we are dealing with a young cop here. So, I, I, I kind of always just took it that Simba being so young and somewhat stupid believed that his pathetic roar was the reason mm. for the stampede and this way Mufasa's death would be his, his fault. Mm-hmm. You were saying about the queer qualities of the uh, Disney baddies over the ages, which we did discuss in Pocahontas as well, where you have the Radcliffe character who does have the same features as Scar in that sense. And it keeps on continuing from any Disney story onwards. Uh, I think there's plenty of evidence of that. I don't know if you can call it like queer qualities, but you can call it... 
like like feminine qualities, right? There are those in in Scar in male characters. Yeah, once again, Scar is a weaker one. This is even a major plot point in the film. This is why Scar can't be the king because. Unlike the more masculine lion Simba and Mufasa, Scar is physically weak. And Scar does have these kind of a feminine movements in, in the film when his plotting is being shown. That moment when he plays with the mouse and most definitely that I'm going to practice my curtsy line which Scar throws out. Kind of a followed by also somewhat uncomfortable and questionable line from Sasu, who points out that there is one of those in every family. Two in mine, and they make all, all the family occasions extremely uncomfortable. Well, he truly did, but I did take notion at that moment as well. Yup. And that, that is something that Disney, also many animated films kind of likes to pull off. Giving these certain kind of traits and physical attributes or, or lack of them to their villainous characters. And w- with that mentioned, it also plays into the plot point that you uh, also brought up, which is the Scar's stubbornness to stay on the Pride Rock, even when the Rock and the Savannah has gone to shit. Because it once again, it plays into the vanity of... Mm. Basically every evil character. The vanity of pride. Vanity of pride. Also the vanity in the sense that these characters are unwilling to face hardships. Leaving the rock, leaving the savannah would mean that Scar also would have to take the trek through the desert. Like Simba does and like Nala does when he goes to look for Simba. Mm -hmm. And that would be physically taxing thing to do as as wandering through a desert is not easy. So Scar's vanity comes once again comes into play in the form of comfortability with of which Scar is unwilling to compromise. Yeah, he he's exceptionally afraid in this last encounter, after which he gets enough emotional courage to fight Simba after he hears that he must leave the Bright Rock forever. Quite interestingly, he, he does. Uh, uh, and like, and the second second point is that <laughs> it doesn't even feel very honest from his side. The whole being scared of Simba, or maybe it's just this Disney query quality or or something. But he seems to like overplay his fear of Simba. Nevertheless, he he's the one he's the one who runs away from Simba, tries to escape the situation. I I kind of was willing to believe that. Scar might have been willing, or he might not have tried that last stunt, throwing burning debris at Simba's face, had Simba not precisely told him to leave the Pride Rock and not to return. Like that, to me, that reads kind of the last straw, and the one thing that Scar was never actually willing or capable of doing. Yeah, and he dies because of his vanity and pride. Goodbye, yep. hyenas have a little bit of a time, because Sazu is, was not available for the menu, now it's uh, Scar's time. Suddenly, the burning stops because there's rain, and the land becomes fertile once again. Just like that. Just like that. 
Because bad, bad kingship also means that there is a transit. Because king controls the rain. Or something he like does. that. He does, yeah. Somehow. Somehow. E- even the he- heavens acknowledge that Simba is the rightful king. And the <laughs> Yeah, they do. Well, it's uh, ex- established in the first goddamn scene when we have the halo light between the clouds coming to the newborn son Simba. So, that, oh, yeah. yeah, so we do. So we yeah, do. Yeah, we missed out on that, that point completely. But there is all this Jesus stuff also included. There kind of is. Yeah. Well, you can read it like that, but uh, I mean, if you're animating the shit for like several years, then that would have to pop into your mind while doing it. Like, hey, this is kind of parallel to Jesus stuff, uh, unless it was intentional from the beginning. But it does give like this holier than whole, this 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 magical, this 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 kingish quality for them. So you can re- overread everything as much as you want into this whole thing, like people have done, which happens to. Uh, very popular films. I get, I think it's just a very well executed, cute story, mixing Hamlet, Kimba, <laughs> and typical Disney cry your heart out moments. Please cry, please cry. If if you cry, then it's a successful Disney film. I do remember in in the Pocahontas episode that we were kind of aware that it was kind of a forced attempt on Disney's part to get the cry at the ending scenes. I mean, it was pushed so hard. Yeah, it's so obvious. Please cry at this point. That being said, also that film had fantastic music, which was the main reason for me to kind of get emotional in that film, even though it was historically a complete shit show. Maybe Pocahontas also should have taken the Disney road and simply killed the dad at some point, you know. Maybe that would have been the missing element for for that film to actually merit an emotional reaction from the audience. Ah. Um, okay. Do you ever wonder if Pocahontas stole the Pride Rock into Pocahontas? Because it does have that cliff there. It it actually, yeah, it actually does. Yeah? Maybe they thought that they need the Pride Rock just to... Ma- ma- you know, maybe Pocahontas help. stole more than simply the animators. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's that's how you get the Lion Kingdom back in order. And that's Lion King for you. We're introduced to the new cub, and you have a continuing story for that in The Lion King 2. Which, once again, grows extremely heavy from... or I wouldn't say extremely heavy, but you can see the comparisons between The Lion King 2 and Romeo and Juliet. I suppose, yeah, 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 yeah. Far inferior, of course, to the original. It is, and God help us with the second straight-to-video sequel there. You mean The Lion King 1 and a half or Lion King 3? Well, isn't it both? Like, yeah, Lion yeah, King yeah, yeah, 1 yeah, and a half it, is it, also, also Lion King 3, and it's it some is. kind of a weird kind of a... I enjoyed it. I, I laughed. I, I hated it. I, I fucking hated it. I laughed so much when I bought it on DVD a long long time ago. Uh, I don't uh, know how, how, how it would work nowadays, but I really did enjoy how they were trying to push these untold uh, stories and scenes into the original Lion King's storyline. They were The explanations on how things turned out were absolutely hilarious. I, I most definitely despised that film. But <laughs> stick, sticking with the Shakespearean influences, uh, that film grows very heavily... Well, it's not a Shakespearean play, but would kind of say Shakespearean fan play. 
of Rosengrads mm. and Gildenstern are dead from which uh, it kind of takes its entire idea. Henrik, looks like that uh, my batteries in my phone and in my laptop says that we have to move on a little bit here. But before we get to the quickies of this podcast, we could talk about The Lion King, the game for Genesis and or Mega Drive and uh, Super Nintendo. Did you ever play this game? No, I made it actually a point in my life to avoid the Disney games. This was a pretty good game, but you know, coming from the likes of Sonic 2 and Sonic 3 at the time for Mega Drive, nothing, absolutely nothing surpasses those games on Genesis, I would say. I mean, in the way that the playability, the way that you control the characters is just extremely good. I've heard that uh, it's hard as nails. Uh, Yeah, it is really hard. And it's one of those particular games that my sisters, especially Annis, was really excited to always play the Lion King. Yay! With the extremely old Mega Drive controller that worked like half of the time. But yeah, that was like a family favorite. Uh, Like I would have something important to do, of course, especially to push out those video game programs that we did. But uh, one of my sisters would sometimes come in to our Vitanen studios and tell me that uh, now it's time to play Lion King. And okay, that was the big thing. It's a pretty good game. It's a pretty good game. Hard as hell. And uh, had really good music adaptations from the film's music. Okay. One of the most mem- memorable moments is, of course, the second or third level where, where you're jumping on the heads of the giraffes. Uh, they are, uh, of course, making it hard as hell to complete the level. And you're supposed to be doing this, I just can't wait to be king shit. And uh, it's not exactly working like in the movie. You have to play that like 50 times before you get through it. I, I only perceived that it was... a. Uh... Disney licensed game and simply by that yeah. fact I immediately skipped it and decided that most likely this is going to follow the same line as most of these license based games and it's really not worth of my time getting into. Yeah. I guess I should have actually tried to somehow hunt down a Sega Genesis and and a copy of the game for for this episode. Yeah, shame on you. Yeah, shame on me. But uh, there, there are some things that I, I still am not willing to do. And using my finances heavily on acts like per- purchasing a TV, then finding a place for the TV, then buying Sega Genesis, and then going on and buying a game cartridge so that I can simply, you know, check out a game based on the movie we are covering any given e- episode so that I can have, like, max two minutes of... of opinions about the game you know that's where i'm drawing the line i know hendrik you know we're still still doing a weekly format so we're not going to dive super deep into this 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 this, this side products of a particular film for example at, at least not not as long as we don't have that sweet sweet patreon money going to our way exactly if I've said this like forever that if you want to make this our job, if you want to hear us every goddamn day, then let us know by email or Facebook or Twitter or whatever that you want to waste your hard-earned money to our podcast. And once we get enough of your money, then we will totally devote our life for this podcast. So never gonna happen. 
It's good to live in a fantasy world. Henrik, would it be the quickies? Why not? Let's get you off that part before your battery completely dies. Sounds good. <laughs> I suppose you're the only one who has access to the list of the quickies, but I believe it starts like this. Favorite performance. And that's how it starts. And that goes to... In both cases, in both dubs, it goes to Scar. Scar! Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that, without a doubt. And uh, especially we should mention Jukka Pekka Pala in this podcast because he is the fantastic Scar that he is in the Finnish version. Finnish actors, voice actors really don't get enough light shown to their way, unfortunately. So, yeah, mo- most definitely must st- stress out the excellent quality of the Finnish song. Yeah, that it is. And favorite scene? I guess that would be the heartstring pulling scene, the death of Mufasa. Yeah, especially before Mufasa dies. That whole stampede scene is one of the most fantastic film moments that I've had, as I've already mentioned in this podcast. And we will get to the favorite shot, which involves this scene as well. But a favorite quote. There's plenty of material. There is plenty of material. There is actually Lion King is abundance of material when it comes to quotations. Hmm. It's really hard to kind of pick just one. Maybe I'm still gonna go with I'm gonna practice my curtsy. Even though it is somewhat problematic for, you know, the queer coding thing which we touch upon in in Pocahontas and also previously in this episode. But still, I think it is great line and very greatly perform, uh, performed by Jeremy Irons. Like that, that is one of the moments where Jeremy Irons' strength as a voice actor really comes through in this film. Yeah, for me, it's the singing moment of Timon and Pumbaa. Like, Lau! If you're hungry for a hunk of fat of juicy meat, I'm sorry I cannot do this as fast as they do. Eat my buddy Pumbaa here, because he is a treat. Come on down and dine and on this taste is wine. All you have to do is get in line. Are you aching? Yup, yup, yup. For some bacon, yup, yup. He's a big pig. Yup, yup. You can be a big pig too. And in Finnish, this is also, I would say, the best line of the film. Because it's so random and it just comes out of nowhere. Also, it it is a scene that (laughs) came from Nathan Lane, I believe, the voice actor for Timon in the film. It was kind of an idea that just came out of nowhere. And somebody said that, okay, well, we'll we'll use this thing that you mentioned as a joke. And let's just implement it in there. I was actually counting on you picking up Hakuna Matata, seeing how that is that might be the most iconic one line of the film. Hakuna Matata, but how is that? Uh, well, well okay, that, okay, okay. yeah, it's 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 kind of the one one line that simply everyone knows and simply everyone remembers. Yeah, that it is. Favorite kill. <laughs> I guess that also has to go to Mufasa. <laughs> Well, there, there is Scar. There is Scar. There are two kills in the film. Yeah, there is Scar. There is and Scar. Scar, I still feel felt was a big lackluster, especially if you compare it to Mufasa's death. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I have no real problem saying Mufasa's kill is the favorite one here, because there's so much going on in the scene around it, too. Like, it's, it's the best moment of the film, anyway. So, uh, 
and a major part of the story. Sad, yes, but definitely favorite. No problem. Yeah, I mean, may- maybe killing a sentient being even should be sad. Yeah. Who knows? I went to army, so what do I know? Henrik, have you ever ridden a skiing slope naked with a cardboard? No, I haven't. And I was actually expecting this uh, this question going in the direction have I ever skiing down a ski slope made of rotting animal heads or something aching to that, you know, more in the direction of how Pride Rock is at the end of the film or underscore. Well, but my intention here is to <clears throat> grab your head out of this whole film and its themes and, of course, to concentrate on my naked body, I guess. What are we doing here? Um... So this is this. <laughs> uh, I must stress out. This is this is a family podcast. <laughs> Despite is all it? the material, <clears throat> with the explicit card. <laughs> with the explicit card, fun fun for the whole family <laughs> includes explicit content. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, first image that comes to mind, Henrik. Apart from my incredible body, of course. Well, that that really is a hard image to top, but <laughs> if absolutely forced, I guess it is Rafiki raising Simba as a cup to the air for so so that the whole animal kingdom can take a bow. Yeah, for for me, it's the shot when the stampede is starting and we first see the stampede on the top of that hill, and then you see this pool towards. Simba's surprised face. <laughs> that's that's a fantastic shot. I will go with that because that's the first that literally comes to mind. And which image best exemplifies this film to Henriksson? I would almost say that it is the you know the same scene, Rafiki holding Simba. It uh, to me mm. it kind of a to me Lion King is like, like I stated. It is mostly about kingship. And the rightfulness to the throne and the responsibilities of a king. And I think that that scene, or maybe, you know, the ending scene when Rafiki is holding Simba's cup, is the one that best exemplifies the theme of a kingship. And the theme of passing down that kingship through blood. Yeah, yeah, I will go basically with the same with the opening scene. That was actually used as a trailer for this film, because they thought that the opening scene... Is so strong and ends with this huge punch, this echoey blast sound that you get. Yeah, and that that is the one scene that I I guess is also kind of a copied or parodied most by basically all the Disney buffs out there. Like there, there is a huge combination videos about people doing raising random objects and puppies and God knows what. In the same manner. What took you out of Lion King? Nothing really. I stayed with the film through the entire running time. Yeah, same here. It is hour and a half of extremely solid material. Mm-hmm. What pulled you in? Uh, maybe that would be Mufasa's death. Yeah. Like the, the, yeah, the biggest tonal shift in the movie happens on that moment. Yeah. And that, to me, that reads as the the most clear moment in the film where the film shows you extremely how hard and how dark it is willing to go. 
<laughs> yeah, family material right there. The most exciting moment, the stampede for me. Yeah, the stampede. Scissors of uh, Sacrilegi. What would you change in the film? Nothing really. I would change the marketing in the sense that they would just be honest about their film and say that this is a big ripoff thematically from Kimba. And that's all. Even if it is, it still holds its ground and it's an amazing film and nothing can be taken away from that fact. Henrik, you really know you're watching The Lion King when... I, I would say when the scene where Simba is asking Mufasa to go home plays out. You really know you're watching The Lion King when you have a stampede on your television that you just cannot get your eyes off from. You you were the better one of us finding the funny quip this time, I must give you that. <laughs> Three adjectives to describe the film. In my end it would be heartfelt, exciting and Shakespearean. Heartbreaking. Well, since you we are going with just singular words, fantastic, how plain, and colorful. We haven't talked about how well they play with the colors, especially in the I just can't wait to be a king. The color palette changes, and once again it's ripped off from Kimba, but um, anyway. Did you look at your watch during this film? <laughs> yeah, probably. No. Yeah, same here. Not in any way. Henrik, would you recommend this film? Absolutely. Most definitely to everyone who hasn't seen it or has seen it, just check it out again. This is really solid animation material. This is one for the ages, Henrik. One of this, the this most definitely is. Yeah. This is once again. This is Disney Corporation on its highest. Like this is yeah. this is one of the best. When you have to explain Disney as a quality animation house, if you have to make a case. Why would anyone be interested in Disney animated films or why they are so well loved? I would say that there is a lot of stinkers in the Disney lineup, but when it comes to Lion King, Lion King the Lion King really is one of the I would I would say crown jewels of Disney animation department and one of those go-to films that you can tell people to check out when you have to explain what is so great in Disney's animated features. That it is. Still one of the best things about childhood, being the kind of TV-staring nerd that I was anyway. And yeah, and it is uh, it is a prime example on how to make a whole family film. A film that talks both to the kids, but doesn't downspeak to them. Doesn't take the kids as, as stupid can have a material for also the adults and, you know, when the kids are more grown up. Like, this is how, when you write your animated film, this is kind of how you should approach it. Yeah, interestingly, it has kind of a pretty easy thematic qualities and it kind of trusts it all the way that we're going to go with this kind of a Hamletian format. And it doesn't try anything else, it's just being what it is and... Uh, totally shines by being as simple as it is, in a way. The pieces just fall together so well. They do. Yeah. With the motivated team, what else can you expect? So, yeah, I would <laughs> I would recommend The Lion King, if that was up to question in this podcast. Anything else, or should we be going home? Maybe we have to get you all of that bar. Oh, well, in that case, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all the other abominations of the 21st century. 
And we also have this International Cinema Challenge still running for your watching pleasure. So in the year, God's year, apparently of 2019, we will be watching 20 films delicately handpicked at the laboratory that are from 20 different countries. And we have already watched quite ingenious and special films that are coming from countries like Chad. And so I would highly recommend that you take part. And if you are not able to find the particular films that we are watching, no problemo. You can take the light version of the challenge and just watch any films that are from 20 different countries. And at the end of the year or January 2020, we will invite at least one or all of you, dear listeners, the hundreds of you, of course, who have been watching this with great pleasure, staring at Uncle Boon Me's one shot for five minutes. Uh, we will invite you, all of you, to our podcast to talk about the experience. In addition, we do have the James Bond film marathon going on throughout 2019 and partly 2020. So, Because this job simply isn't hard enough already. With one marathon going on... I, I know, how to have several. So we will be watching one Bond film every last Thursday of the month. We have already gone through from Russia with love. And next time we fly to on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Really waiting for that one. One of the least loved films in the franchise. Bullshit. It's one of the most loved films in the franchise. It is so loved that nobody is missing Lazenby as a Bond. At the time, the Lazenby thing was a kind of a problem, but uh, as people have uh, had the ability to watch the franchise as a whole, they have found a lot of respect for the film. Perhaps not because of especially George Lazenby, but because the film story-wise is very strong and uh, it has some of the best cinematography and uh, some of the most beautiful locations that you could ever experience. And add with that, it has one of the best soundtracks of the entire series, John Barrett really giving it his all. And it actually has a story that has some you know, dramatical weight to it. I, I, when it comes to worldwide, globally wise, I would more count that into the fact that the film is followed by Roger Moore era of movie. <laughs> well, we can see the tonal shift is there. From On Her Majesty's Secret Service, we move on to Diamonds Are Forever, which is going into this Guy Hamilton slapstick madness so that the difference is so huge between these films that it's not even funny i don't know if it's like <laughs> a, a attempt to be different for the 70s or just i don't know what the hell they're doing but it's totally a complete departure it, it, it is a wild ride i must give you that much yeah with a moon buggy all right that was the flick lab and um, more than likely we'll be seeing you next week once again with the film that is called <laughs> yeah it will be on our majesties for the next week hopefully our ear training finnish accents haven't completely driven you crazy by then so thank you for joining us keep your head up keep commenting on the flick lab social medias and please give us a rating in every place that you can imagine facebook especially iTunes to high up our ranking. Yeah. Because it really counts. It really counts, guys. It takes like 20 seconds. So I appreciate your efforts to support our project that takes like a huge chunk of our free time. No lies there. But um, yeah, we're trying our best to 
kind of improve the way that we build the episode. For example, in this episode, we're hoping there will be zero cuts. But I know there will be at least one already. See you next week. Until then. <laughs>